Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Good morning and uh, happy Valentine's Day to all of you snuggled at home on your couches because it's minus four degrees at most. Uh, Would you please stand for our scripture for this morning? You can keep your blankets wrapped around you if you want. And all the people took off the golden rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took them from their hand and he fashioned it in a mold and made it into a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord came down in the cloud and stationed himself with Moses there. And he invoked the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and he called out, The Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in kindness and good faith, keeping kindness for the thousandth generation, bearing crime, trespass, and defense, yet he does not wholly acquit, reckoning the crime of fathers with sons and sons of sons to the third generation and the fourth. It's Exodus 32, 3 and 4, and 34, 5 through 7. This is Ra-Womb, more like, or an empathic dragging, at least, or omni-omni-oxen-free, or compassion for monsters. Look, I had a plan. I really did. I even had a sermon mostly written. I was going to talk again about how we are wandering people, meaning we're anxious and worried and sometimes aimless people, especially in this pandemic. I was going to talk about how my wife, the professional counselor, had a particularly trying week at work. And after listening to one heavy story after another, she said to me on Thursday night, people are not okay, love. She calls me love. Even the ones who are okay are not okay. Uh, And I was going to place us in the Exodus story that way, as wanderers like the Israelites, uh, really having been rescued by a God that we sometimes don't feel like we know very well, recapping what I said last time about how God sometimes feels so evasive, how we feel sometimes like we can only just see where he just was, which can lead to a heavy week in the counseling office. After all, I mean, how, how certain can we really be of things when all we've been told directly of God so far in Exodus is that his name is I am being itself. You feel more certain or less certain after being introduced to someone with a name like that? Uh, and then I was going to lead us to Exodus 34, the very next section from where we left off last time, where God showed us his glory, sort of. And I was going to say that the first thing that God really tells us about his character in any depth in Exodus, and really in the Bible up to this point, is that he is compassionate, that he feels for us in our wandering when we feel helpless and aimless, that his compassion means that he's on our side and is connected to us, and that because of that connection, he moves to rescue us uh, amid our heaviness and confusion and therapy bills. And to be fair, I was going to point out that the audience God speaks to about his compassion is not just vulnerable people, but also people who had just committed idolatry against him, the worshipers of the golden calf. And I was going to say things about idolatry that you might expect. Like, you know, how we look to the wrong things to be the answers to our questions about who or what determines our direction in life and gives us identity and value and purpose in the first place, if we have any. 
You, you know how we answer those questions a lot with idols, uh, like presidents and artists and career paths and relationships, etc. But I was going to point out that, you know, idolatry is understandable because the Israelites had been waiting a long time for Moses to come back down the mountain and tell them something of this God that they didn't really know. And they were restless and how they were really eager for God to go before them. That's what they wanted. It was just that they didn't really know who God was. So they mistook him for a golden calf, which is why they said, here are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Hold a festival to the Lord. These are the ones like we do still God's compassionate to us when our desires and motivations get put in the wrong place, you know, like idolatry, and we end up worried, sick, devoted to the wrong thing. Uh, it, was, it was going to be a good sermon, if a little bit uh, intellectual and abstract. But then on Friday, I heard stories, stories, real stories from other places, several of them, not about us in this community specifically, but nonetheless real. Uh, and they were, they, were, they were monstrous, horrific stories about people in positions of power and influence and authority who used those positions to manipulate and abuse and prey on innocent people. You've heard them before. The kind of stories that make you question what you think you know about the world and how it works, and who God is. Stories that just cause you utter like dissonance because you simply can't fathom how things could get to a place where someone could treat another person that way. And, and while reading the golden calf story, again, where if you read it closely enough, you might see that the people, uh, it's not, their, their idolatry is not just that they worship the calf in song, uh, but then what happens is they start to get out of control in ways where, like, I could Im easily imagine this same kind of manipulation and abuse happening there at the Golden Calf. And, and when reading that in light of those stories on Friday, it hit me that idolatry doesn't have consequences only in the abstract. It's not just about misplaced devotion or misguided thoughts or wayward desires. Uh, it doesn't stop there at the level of just like, you know, your heart and mind. Worshiping uh, power or wealth or comfort or the body or the country or your own image, uh, it doesn't just make you love those things more. Uh, idolatry, whether in the short or the long run, whether in my immediate sphere or far removed from me, it always plays out in the real world with destructive and sometimes catastrophically destructive effects on real people even if you don't see them. So, so I saw then for a moment that idolatry is not merely an offense against God, and it can't be contained in an individualistic bubble where the consequences are like only to my own purity or my mentality or uh, my quiet times. Like idolatry as a concept like that is intriguing, but, but as a reality, idolatry leads to horrors like those stories that I heard. And my action, my reaction to these stories, uh, it was like I, I was infuriated, infuriated uh, and confused and just so, so sad. And it connected with me then in my fury when I read that God's reaction, this is in Exodus 32, God's reaction to the fallout of the worship of the golden calf was, uh, and this is a quote, now leave me be that my wrath may flare against them. And I was like, yes, 
after those stories on Friday for me, I was like, yes, against them, let it flare, Lord. Because, like, honestly, I, I flirted with idolatry, but I haven't let it lead me to dark places like that. So, so against these monsters who not only worship power and domination, but whose idolatry leads them to justify wielding that against the weak and the helpless, uh, against them, let your anger rage and let it burn and let it never be extinguished. I mean, what, what other reaction could we have toward those who do such things? Uh, and then I was moving on through the Bible, and I came back around to Exodus 34, when God tells Moses the name he is to report to these idolatrous monsters down at the foot of the mountain so that they might see him more fully. And, and what we get is not consuming fire, and it's not God Almighty or holy. No, what, what Moses is to tell uh, these monsters God's name is, is uh, the Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in kindness and good faith. And I realized when I realized who God was talking to, that, that what God has toward them, toward these monsters is of all things compassion. And, and suddenly God's compassion didn't comfort me. It offended me. God, God's compassion isn't toward just the nice and the helpless, toward uh, those of us in counseling. That's not just toward the victim, but, but God's compassion is toward the perpetrator as well. The name of God for everyone is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in kindness and good faith. And I thought, you know, there's a compassion that the world knows and even applauds, compassion toward the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable, uh, which I think we, the church folks, could could stand to have a good deal more of in our own lives. Uh, and this kind of compassion, the Bible praises too, and it should. But then there is also a compassion that the world around us and the world within us hates and finds offensive and cannot feel anything other than dissonance toward. And that's like compassion for the rich and the powerful and the harmful and it like literally doesn't compute. And this does not compute compassion and graciousness uh, are perhaps the things about God that require the most trust from us. It's hard. I mean, we, sh we shouldn't shame ourselves if we, in our honest moments, when we think about these stories of our own that we know of these monsters, uh, if we find it almost impossible to bring ourselves to trust it. Jonah, uh, you know, of Jonah and the whale fame, uh, maybe never did trust it himself. So, so this verse, Exodus 34, 6, that we're talking about with the name, this is actually the verse in the Bible that the Bible itself most quotes, at least in the Old Testament. Uh, and we hear it as ringing praise throughout the prophets and Psalms. It is the name that the Hebrews loved to proclaim. And we also hear it in Jonah, but, <laughs> but not as an acclamation. So remember Jonah, do you know why Jonah ran away from God? I'll save you an entire sermon and I'll get straight to the point. Uh, it was because the people that God asked Jonah to go tell God loved them were the very people uh, who were taking Jonah's cousins and grandparents and childhood best friends' heads and putting them up on stakes after torturing them. So not 
too unlike our ones using their religious influence as a pretense for destroying innocent lives. And really, it wasn't just that Jonah understandably hated them and didn't want to tell them God loved them, but more specifically, Jonah ran because he knew exactly who God was and would always be toward the monsters who turned toward him. And that was something Jonah simply could not tolerate. And how could he with what they had wreaked on his family and the people that he loved? And yet when God finally did get his love across to those hideous Ninevite monsters, despite Jonah's best efforts not to let them in on the secret, the scripture says that these monsters' reconciliation to God, quote, was very evil for Jonah, and he was incensed. It was very evil to Jonah that they were reconciled to God, uh, and, and I say as it, as it would be for us, too, and our monsters. Uh, and we, and Jonah, we scream at God and say, see, I knew this would happen. This is why I ran away, because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in kindness and relenting from evil. And for once in the scripture, uh, and perhaps in the most honest recording of it in the scripture, the Exodus 34 name is not invoked as a praise, but rather it's hurtled uh, as an insult back in God's face. And on Friday, I could relate. Hear me. Neither God nor I condone wicked, harmful, abusive behavior. And it does not go without incurring consequences. It's not what I'm saying. But God's compassion, uh, I'm finding, is as much toward the monster as toward their victim. And, and I'm finding that uh, if, if God's compassion isn't offensive to us at some level... Uh, I'm, I'm suggesting we haven't fully come to grips with it yet. How can it be? How, how can God be compassionate toward them? The word here in Exodus 34 uh, and in Jonah and elsewhere, the, the word for compassionate, the actual Hebrew word is rahum. And, and it means compassionate, but it sounds very similar to another Hebrew word, rechem. So say rahum, got to get the little phlegm in your throat. Rahum, say rechem. Rahum, rechem. They sound similar because they are in fact related. They come from the same root. And so like we already said, the Exodus 34 word rahum means compassionate and rechem, the word that sounds a lot like it, means womb. As in, you know, where a baby grows. Womb. So so this is what that means. In the Hebrew mind, where our Bible comes from, God's compassionate nature is tightly tied to the idea of a mother's womb. It's interesting, isn't it, just by the way, that the first word used for God in this most quoted verse is a word that is, uh, one, it's emotional. So we're getting an emotional word for God. And also, uh, it's, it's a word... Um, it, it, it's, it's knit with something that is so feminine and nurturing. It's interesting that that's the word we get for God when presumably, uh, God could have first used uh, like anything else, like the Lord, the Lord, all powerful, uh, the, or the Lord, the Lord, all knowing. Anyway, so, so while it may offend us, uh, that God is compassionate even toward these monsters. Uh, I'm saying the thing about womb because at least we can understand this. What mother 
could give up on her child that she carried in her own womb, nursed from the life in her own body. What mother could give up on this child, no matter what that child grew up to become? The mother will be tough at times and firm, yes, uh, but she will never cease to be compassionate. God's compassion means, uh, like a mother and the children of her womb, uh, that God is connected with us at the deepest level. Compassion means there is a bond. Uh, and, and it means that God is emotionally moved at both our helplessness and our waywardness. Uh, so, so in addition to the bond, there is emotional reactions. And it also means that God acts to save because of that bond and that emotional response. Compassion means bond and emotion uh, and rescuing action. Frederick Buechner said, compassion is the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live inside somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there never really, uh, there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. It's related to the word empathy, actually. It's really close. Uh, and speaking of living inside somebody else's skin, uh, I, I'm brought here. If I cannot fathom, and really what I mean is if I cannot believe that God could be compassionate toward uh, these idolaters, toward these monsters, I'm brought back again uh, to Jesus, God in our skin. Back to him, uh, back to the stories that he told as well as the story that he lived. And so thinking about the stories that he told, in three of his most famous parables, he hinges salvation on the word compassion. It's the defining quality of these, uh, these characters who are the representations of God, uh, who act in these stories to rescue even the most offensive characters. So in the parable of the unforgiving servant, it is when the king is moved by compassion that he decides to cancel this servant's debt. And in the story, this debt is so large that it's only real world analog has to be something like the monstrosities that I heard about on Friday. And in the parable of the prodigal son, it's the father's compassion that moves him to shamefully run to and embrace his son, his son who had so arrogantly and insultingly uh, run off and squandered all that his father gave him. And, and what can we say at all about our idolatrous monsters if not that they have squandered all God has given them? Or in the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's compassion that moves him to rescue a man uh, who was as good as dead. And, and when our monsters' actions essentially prove that nearly every last bit of what is human has been sucked out of them by darkness and by sin, isn't dead exactly how we ought to describe them? And so what we see is that God, what he has toward uh, these monsters is compassion, and his compassion moves him to save. Why? Uh, maybe there is no why. It's just his nature. He, he just is. I think about the story that Jesus lived, like when, when he saw the crowds, and it says he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And what he felt toward them was not annoyance or skepticism or blame, uh, but what he felt toward them was compassion. And he took care of them. He healed them. He fed them. And even at the cross him itself, 
when Jesus is confronted not with helpless, vulnerable, wandering crowds who are in need of therapy, but when he's confronted with Roman soldiers who are torturing and murdering him, he cries out, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you believe that? That they didn't know what they were doing? That these monsters really don't know what they're doing as they pound the nails and scrape the flesh and pierce the side? And yet what Jesus sees in them moves him not to condemnation, but to compassion. What else could possibly give voice to a plea like that? Forgive them. They don't know. Forgive them. They don't know. Jesus said that when he was lifted up on that cross, he would drag all men, all the monstrous, idolatrous, unfathomable men to himself. This is the gospel that uh, we cannot abide And it's also the gospel that we can't live without. And only once we believe in the offensive compassion of God will we begin to understand it. And I don't know why, but I'll finish with this. I had a dream two nights ago. I was riding my bike, and I turned from my street, Lewis, onto Randolph, heading toward campus. It's a long alleyway, basically, a tunnel and the sun was bright, and I could see from there straight down the road to the heart of campus. And no one was around, but as I rode with my arms out, I knew God was compassionate, and the air was warm on my face. And so now, may we believe the unbelievable and the offensive, and may we trust the compassion of God And may we see that what is most offensive, his compassion and its attendant forgiveness, is also what is most deeply true. And may God turn us to worship him. Amen.